This is your host, Leticia Wiggins, and welcome to History Talk, the history podcast for everyone produced by Origins. And I'm Patrick Patyandi, your other host. In late spring of 2014, the finishing touches were completed on the redesign of the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Its reopening has coincided with the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The redesign was the first since the museum opened in 1991. Interactive media, oral histories, and more than 40 new films were added to the collection held there. Moreover, the reopening had garnered national attention and acclaim. The museum's redesign has also created the opportunity for the United States to pause and consider its fraught history of civil rights. In the opening segment of today's show, we're joined by two Ohio State historians, Stephanie Shaw and Hassan Jeffries, who led the team of scholars that reinterpreted the museum. So stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy this episode of History Talk. Um, hi, I'm Stephanie Shaw. I'm a professor of history here at Ohio State. Um, I, my research is primarily uh, related to African-American women, but I teach courses um, that sort of cover mostly the 19th century Afro-American and also uh, U.S. women's history. And I'm Hassan Kwame Jeffries, an associate professor of history here at The Ohio State University as well. Uh, and my areas of uh, research teaching um, specialization uh, include the uh, civil rights movement, black power movement, uh, 20th century African-American history more generally, but specifically civil rights uh, and black power eras. So we would like to just start with a quick overview of the role each of you played in the redesign of the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis. So I'll begin. Well, well first, I think both of our roles sort of evolved over time uh, and, and which partly reflected the creative process of the redesign as a whole. And so I initially was brought on uh, with the firm that did not receive uh, the um, contract. Mm. I was with another firm at first and was serving as their uh, sort of on-site historian in the bidding process, mm. um, participated in their presentation and, and helped them um, sort of focus their, their, their thoughts on what they might do. And they did not receive the bid, and so I thought, oh, well, that was fun. Um, but then the museum itself reached out to me um, because they had they liked sort of what I brought to um, that uh, creative partnership. Um, and so my work began with the museum directly as they began to rethink their overall mission statement. And so that's where I began with a rethinking of what the uh, mission statement Uh, for the museum might be. And then uh, they recommended me to the the team that won the contract, Howard Rivas. And that, again, the process sort of evolved from there. Um, So I served as, uh, with Stephanie, one of the primary uh, historical consultants uh, for content development, uh, but then worked on script writing, some design elements, uh, media consulting, um, and, and pretty much a little bit of everything <laughs> down the road. Stephanie? Yeah. Um, well, and I don't know where this fits in the, in the, the process that, that Hassan described, but at one point uh, in the process, um, the museum actually brought in five or six historians um, really early on. 
And I'm guessing, but I don't know this, that it turned out to be sort of a test. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> because ultimately, they hired the two of us. Um, mm, and Hassan okay. may have been already, I mean, not, you, you've already said you were already involved, but you may have already been hired by that point by them. I don't know. But my, you know, my impression was that it was those two or three days that resulted in their settling ultimately, at least on me. And I always assumed on the two of us as opposed to others who were involved in that, in that, um, that weekend, as I recall, a weekend of discussing the museum and, you know, sort of some insights on what could be done, what should be done, and, and those kinds of things. Um, once on board, um, I worked overwhelmingly on the slavery and Jim Crow parts of the exhibit, you know, trying to, well, doing a lot of research um, because a lot of these things are not committed to my memory and um, and writing some sort of main points that the, those parts of the exhibit should highlight and, and um, digging up details for people who, as Hassan said, who are working on the videos and who are working on the interactive um, elements of the museum, some information for them to use in those processes. Um, I reviewed content outlines as we went along. Once they took that information and turned it into something else, the kinds of documents that they were going to use. Um, we both reviewed them. I felt more responsible for the slavery and Jim Crow parts, but I also reviewed all of them. Um, but I but I knew that Hassan was the person who really, you know, should have the ultimate say on the 20th century parts, and especially the late 20th century parts. There, there were several historians involved in this process, and I'm wondering if there were other outside groups or, or individuals who also played a role in determining what ended up in the museum redesign? Um, yeah, and, and historians and others were brought in at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, so closer toward the end of the uh, process, there was also a group of people brought in who were activists themselves, who were involved in these movements directly um, and from different perspectives, someone who was really active in SNCC, someone who was really active in Mississippi, uh, people who were involved in different kinds of ways, someone who was really close to, to Martin Luther King, um, and along with modern U.S. scholars, people who were scholars of the civil rights movement. So there were several moments in that whole process where others were brought in. And I'm sure also that there, there had to have been, although I can't recall it, there had to have been some, a, a lot of community involvement in this process, too. Maybe they were there when I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, certainly the community, the local community, the Memphis community, mm-hmm. um, was very much involved early on. And so mm, okay. in the selection of the, the team, they had the museum did a very good job um, as being st- stewards of the Lorraine Motel um, of bringing in or soliciting community input very early on, keeping the community informed uh, about what it was doing. Um, but then I think when the, the actual renovation work began, um, then it became sort of more of the professionals. Um, mixed with sort of the academics and the activists. And they did a good job of sort of bringing those two together. And then the final, the final piece, I think, um, what Stephanie was alluding to was, was really this sort of dream team of civil rights, U.S. history scholars at the end who reviewed all of the, I think it's 25 or 26 separate exhibits. Um, uh, and, and just to, 
you know, saying, okay, we have a preliminary script. We've gone through the content outline. What do you think, you know, is this, did we get it right? Uh, and to get that sort of feedback um, and was, was really was really a special moment, I think. Yeah, with all this this process of working together and this dream team that you guys assembled, what is the final result? Like, how is this museum and its exhibits different from the one before it? For instance, have artifacts changed or the presentation or the narrative of the history changed since you've been working on it? How did you write this? Well, I, actually, I want to. I want to toss it to Stephanie for a second because I mean one of the th- one of the big changes happens in the beginning, mm. and just in terms of how the, the intro and how we how the museum deals with um, the Atlantic slave trade, how it deals with slavery early on in the United States. So, Stephanie, do you want? Yeah, well, well, one of the I think one of the primary differences in terms of the whole exhibit is that the original exhibit. I mean, you you have to sort of remember that this was. 20-some years ago. Um, Actually, it was more than 20-some years ago when this was conceived. Um, And 20 years ago when that exhibit, the original exhibit, was mounted. Um, But at that time, you know, access to a lot of material was limited. Certainly, they had a different kind of access to funding. Um, And so it was a really different kind of exhibit. It was an exhibit that was driven by text, by narrative. Um, they probably, I'm guessing, didn't have the didn't have the money to buy artifacts um, that they would have wanted. They had a lot of a lot of facsimile um, material, and 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 a lot of physical material. But it was still an exhibit that was really driven by the text. You had to read a mm. lot um, to to sort of understand what was happening in that exhibit. Um, so the 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 redesign includes a lot more material, a lot more, as, as has already been indicated, a lot more interactive um, things. Um, they've incorporated the technologies of today that weren't, um, that weren't available then and, and in some instances were barely imagined at that time. Um, but as Hassan said, the first part of the exhibit is, is in, indeed very, very different from um, what it used to be. Um, and one of the things that's really different about it is uh, a recognition of the world system that slavery developed in, that the, that the slavery that we um, talk about in U.S. history was a part of a global system. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most exciting things I think about it is, is, uh, is the mapping. You know, um, there's a, v- a visual that's the floor that mm-hmm. you can't actually miss and, um, you know, so you see the relationship of these continents and this ocean to everything that was going on um, during that time. Um, also, I think, although I didn't have a whole lot to do with this, um, Africa is incorporated a lot more in the early part of the exhibit. Ernestine Jenkins, um, University of Memphis, had much more to do with that part. And, um, and I think the Jim Crow section of this exhibit now focuses um, more on what on black community development during that period, on what black people were doing themselves, whereas before there might have been too much emphasis on what people were doing to them. So there's more balance there now. And I think um, sort of moving forward from sort of the early parts of the museum exhibit, uh, exhibits to sort of the what we would consider sort of the modern the modern civil rights era, I mean, there were a number of sort of changes, small changes that we did in terms of emphasis. Uh, so, for example, uh, in the original exhibit, uh, there was a big, or the original museum, there was a big exhibit on 
uh, the Little Rock Nine. Uh, and so in this exhibit, while we still treat the Little Rock Nine and the, the Little Rock Crisis 1957, um, there's a much broader treatment uh, about student activists and student desegregation during that period. So it's not that, you know, there were elements that are that it's not that old elements are ignored. Uh, it's that the older elements are put often in a broader context. Another example that comes to mind uh, is the earlier treatment on Mississippi, uh, which focused heavily on the James Meredith um, desegregation of Ole Miss. And, and so one of the suggestions that we came up with was, hold on, you know, the Meredith desegregation of Ole Miss was important, but again, there's a much broader context, a deeper story that has to be told about uh, Mega Evers, early NAACP activists, so that will then set up when we come back and deal with Freedom Summer. And so content-wise, there's a number of sort of changes and shifts and emphasis and focus. Uh, and then just lastly, one thing that really that I was really excited about that the designers were able to do in, in hearing what we were suggesting and talking about, about what the movement was, um, was in each of these exhibits, exhibits, it now takes on the sense of place in a sort of a new way. Mm-hmm. So, you, you know, you come out of the Jim Crow era and then you walk into sort of a courtroom. Uh, and then in another example, you're in, you're in a schoolhouse, this sort of sense of schoolhouse, sense of place changes. Then you're you know, on a Montgomery Street, a Birmingham Street, but then you, know, you, you find yourself in the middle of a demonstration or a jail cell or, or in a church, um, a, a Freedom uh, COFO um, headquarters during Freedom Summer, uh, across a bridge. I mean, the streets of uh, Chicago. I mean, so you physically... Uh, experience the civil rights movement the way it happened, right, in these multiple spaces uh, in addition to these multiple places. And so you get a better sense for the uh, – it becomes an immersive experience uh, in a way, and they, yeah, they achieve it, that. It sounds really, really immersive, um, really throwing you right into the middle of everything. Um, and so given that it has been 50 years since many of the key events of what we think about, right, when we think about the civil rights movement – um, what is the goal of the museum, would you say, in the last few minutes for our first segment here? Is it only to present the history, um, quote unquote, or is it trying to influence, even if indirectly, current race relations or the debate over race relations today? I think that um, I think that one of the that there were a number of goals, um, obviously, from the beginning, and one was to present this history in a real accessible way, in a way that school children you know, adults, um, young adults, uh, people who were involved in the movement. So to present this material in a way that those who don't know anything about it, wherever they are, you know, in terms of age or grade or whatever, that they could understand it to be accessible to, uh, for it to be accessible to them. Um, The other thing is for those people who were involved in this movement, for them to recognize it, for them to, you know, for them to recognize themselves in it and recognize it as what they, in fact, went through. Um, and, and what they did. But I think another really important part of the sort of overall goal was for people to leave that exhibit with the feeling that they themselves can change their community, to change their neighborhood, to change their state, to change to change the world. Um, it was, and I think that was a real conscious, um, um, a, a real conscious inclusion, you know. Yeah, certainly the museum had multiple goals, as Stephanie pointed out, you know, to preserve this important history, to present it in a challenging way, in an honest way, a truthful way, to get the history right, but then to challenge people. Um, and th- there, there literally is this great interactive called Join the Movement, 
um, so that people, after experiencing this, that they will see themselves as the inheritors of this fantastic legacy of this struggle and want to pick it up and bring it back to their communities in in these multiple ways. Um, so, no, there was definitely a it, – it's not just um, a place for old artifacts to be held. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is a place for living history. Um, and the museum was consciously trying to um, to do that, to challenge people as they come in with the history, but then challenge them as they leave to do something uh, to further this movement for democracy in America. And I think if I could add something, I think also that, that there is a there's a way in which the exhibitry itself, um, even if people weren't asked at the end, you know, what can you do or what do you want to do? I think there's a way in which the exhibitry itself um, encourages people to think that way. Because one of the things that um, the exhibits do is they make it apparent that, all, that the, probably the vast majority of these people, without saying so in most instances, that the vast majority of people who were involved in this revolutionary movement for social, political, economic change were really ordinary people. You know, they didn't start out as leaders. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer was a sharecropper mm-hmm. and had been all her life, and her parents had been. You know, so so I think people get a sense when they leave this exhibit, well, before even they get to that section where they're asked, what can you do or what do you want to do? Before they get to that, I think they have a sense already that, they're things that they can do where they live, you know, because these, you know, these things rarely start out as movements. Mm-hmm. You know, they start out as a, a person making a decision to do something. Well, thank you, all of you. Um, thank you, Stephanie Shaw, Hassan Kwame Jeffries, for joining us today for this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Leticia Wiggins. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.